0: Pharaoh turns from tyranny to murder. He informs two women who assist in the childbirth of the children of Israel to engage in infanticide, killing every Israelite boy. And yet, we know that these women heroically ignore the order. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 16. The Sarajevo Haggadah and the Daughter of Pharaoh. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. As we begin the Bible's second book, we ponder a volume which bears true testament to the Jewish love of the Exodus story and the trials and tribulations of Jewish history. It is a Haggadah from medieval Spain. The Haggadah, perhaps the most beloved post-biblical text in the Judaic corpus, contains the liturgy of the Passover Seder, and this particular Haggadah bears exquisite images adorning the text as well as the more prosaic wine stains of Seder's past. The volume was born out of Spain after the expulsion, ending up in Venice, where, chillingly, it took on a signature of a censor from the Inquisition who had inspected it. Then the Haggadah somehow made its way to the National Museum of Bosnia in Sarajevo, acquiring the name the Sarajevo Haggadah. In 1942, the Nazis entered the city and came to the museum to confiscate its treasure. The museum's Muslim librarian, a man named Dervis Korkut, beseeched the director that he, Dervis, act to save the Jewish treasure from the Nazis. Geraldine Brooks, in an incredible article in The New Yorker, describes how, quote, the director was reluctant. You will be risking your life, he warned. Korkut replied that the book was his responsibility as custos, custodian of the library's 200,000 volumes. So the two men hurried to the basement where the Haggadah was kept in a safe whose combination only the director knew, he took the book from a protective box and handed it to Korkut. Korkut lifted his coat and tucked the small codex, which measured about 6 by 9 inches, into the waistband of his trousers. End quote. Thus was the Sarajevo Haggadah suddenly saved by a non-Jew. In this respect, the book is itself an embodiment of the Exodus story. The volume's own history Reflects the tale of Israel's enslavement and redemption that it seeks to tell. For the roots of the Exodus are bound up in an episode not only of Egyptian evil, but also ultimately of Egyptian heroism, moral courage, which would ultimately profoundly impact the most important Israelite that ever lived. With all of Joseph's generation dying, the beginning of the book of Exodus informs us of a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and who viewed the growing Hebraic demographic with dismay. Exodus 1, verse 9. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal craftily with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there befalleth us any war, they also join themselves unto your enemies, and fight against us, and get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set upon them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. Thus did the enslavement of Israel begin. But in further fear of Israelite demographics, Pharaoh turns from tyranny to murder. He informs two women who assist in the childbirth of the children of Israel to engage in infanticide, killing every Israelite boy. And yet, we know that these women heroically ignore the order. But who were these women? They are described in scripture as mi'aldot Ivriot, which is usually rendered the Hebrew midwives. But the great Sephardic exegete Isaac Abravanel argues that Pharaoh would surely not have ordered Hebrew women to murder their own brethren, and instead insists that mi'aldot Ivriot be understood as the midwives to the Hebrews. These were, he insists, Egyptians. With Abravanel's interpretation in mind, let us now study the text, verse 15. And the king of Egypt spoke to the midwives to the Hebrews, of whom the names of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when ye act as a midwife to the Hebrew women, look upon the birthstool. If it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them. And they let the male children live. It is an astonishing story for the ancient age. The pharaoh who is worshipped as a god orders the butchering of babies, and yet he is disobeyed. It is the first sign of a central theme at the heart of the Exodus. One, as we shall see in later lectures, Benjamin Franklin suggested as a motto for the seal of the United States. Rebellion to tyrants, obedience to God. For what the biblical book proclaims is that human dignity derives from the divine. The inviolability of human life is linked to the creator in whose image we are, and no king can undo that. And if, as Abravanel argues, these women are Egyptians, Pharaoh's own subjects, then this truly is a profound moment in the moral and political history of mankind, in which humble subjects, mere midwives, defy a dictator's demand because they somehow intuit a moral order to which they owe greater fealty than to Pharaoh. And the fact that Pharaoh then seems to accept the excuses offered by the midwives also indicates that they are indeed Egyptian. Verse 18, And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing, and have let the male children live? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and deliver before the midwives come to them. Were these women Hebrews, one would think that Pharaoh would be somewhat suspicious. That he is not can best be explained by the fact that it was inconceivable to him that these two particular people would dare to defy him. If Abravanel is correct, then the first hero of the Exodus story, the first hero of this foundational Jewish story, is a Gentile, or rather two Gentiles. In the midst of anti Israelite oppression, moral courage among certain non Israelites suddenly makes itself manifest. Thus, it is fitting, ladies and gentlemen, that one of the most cherished Haggadahs in history, the Sarajevo Haggadah, should have been preserved by a non Jew who himself defied the anti Semitic tyranny that descended upon him. And this was not the only dictate of a dictator that Korkut defied. As the article in the New Yorker reveals, Korkut and his wife Servette also hid and thereby saved the life of a young girl from the Sephardic community of Sarajevo, Mira Papo a Jew who, like the Israelites in Egypt, was targeted for destruction, only to be saved by Gentile heroism. As Geraldine Brooks writes, The Korkats called her Amira, passing her off as a Muslim servant sent from a rural Albanian village by Servet's family to help with the Korkut's infant son, Munib. I told her if anyone came to the door, she should go to the pantry. Servet said that the two of them, both just 19 years old, became great friends. In spite of the immense risk, she told me, I loved having someone my own age around. She called me Auntie Servette. Thus, the Haggadah is saved, preserved by a non-Jew who also risked his life to save a Jew. Rightly understood, the pages of the Haggadah uniquely proclaim a Jewish story of exile and persecution, but also of salvation. On the one hand, the wine-soaked pages are adorned, quote-unquote, with the Inquisitor's inscription in the Venice Ghetto, a reminder of centuries of affliction and hate that Jews receive from non-Jews. But on the other hand, the only reason that we have these precious pages, the only reason that we have this book today, is because of the extraordinary courage, morality, and heroism of a non-Jew. Thus does the Haggadah embody the original Exodus whose story it tells, a story of persecution at the hands of non-Jews but also rare but extraordinary non-Jewish heroism. And the midwife's heroism is only the beginning. It is the mercy of another Egyptian that truly sets the stage for the redemption. With the midwife's refusal to obey his order, Pharaoh instead insists that the newborn boys be thrown into the Nile. An Israelite baby is born, hidden for three months, and then his desperate mother takes desperate action. Chapter 2, verse 3. And when she found she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch, And she put the child therein and laid it in the reeds at the edge of the river. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. And her maidens walked along by the riverside. And she saw the ark among the reeds and sent her handmaiden to fetch it. And she saw the child, and behold, it was a boy that wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the Nile. She defies her father's decree. Through the intervention of the ever-alert Miriam, Moses' sister, the baby is brought back to his birth mother to be nursed, so his earliest moments will be spent in a Hebrew home, and then Pharaoh's daughter adopts the child and raises him as her own. Verse 10, And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him from the water. Here again, ladies and gentlemen, how the Hebrew works is a bit ambiguous. And translation is tricky. The simple understanding is that Moses' appellation is a pun. In the verse, the phrase, I drew him, is mishitihu. And so it would seem that Pharaoh's daughter names her adopted son, Moshe, Moses, as a pun on this word, Moshe mishitihu. Of course, in English, this is lost entirely. And so it's a bit amusing when in Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, Bithia, the daughter of Pharaoh, finds Moses and proudly proclaims, You will be the glory of Egypt, my son, mighty in words and deeds. Kings shall bow before you, your name will live when the pyramids are dust, and because I drew you from the water, you shall be called Moses. But of course, for the puzzled audience experiencing it in English, this makes no sense at all. But even the standard understanding of the Hebrew is enigmatic. Indeed, countless commentators find this purported pun profoundly puzzling. Why would an Egyptian princess ascribe to her son a name bearing a Hebrew pun. Why would she pun in a language not her own? I therefore prefer the explanation of my favorite biblical commentator, whom we have met before, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. Rabbi Berlin is also my ancestor, though that's not why he's my favorite commentator. Well, maybe a little. Rabbi Berlin argues that the baby's bestowed name is not a pun. Moses in Egyptian is essentially the word for son, S-O-N. For a Berlin, Pharaoh's daughter is exclaiming, I have drawn this baby from the water, I have saved his life. Therefore, even though he was born to another woman, even though he will be nursed by her, my son he remains. This allows us to understand, as several modern commentators have noted, that there's an interesting contrast between Moses and the man, the monarch, the Pharaoh, before whom he would stand. If, as is often thought, the Pharaoh of the Exodus is named Ramesses, which is Ra, Moses, son of the sun god, then Exodus pits Ramesses versus Moses, the paganism of Pharaoh, against the moral heroism of his daughter. But here, ladies and gentlemen, is what the Torah never tells us. Presumably Moses' Israelite parents, whose names we later learn are Yocheved and Amram, named their child at his birth. And the Midrash contains all sorts of suggestions as to that particular appellation, but never, not once, are those names used. He is known only in the Bible, only by the name which he has received from an Egyptian. In so doing, the Torah itself is recognizing, in a remarkable manner, how critical one act of heroism from a non-Jew was to the story of the Exodus itself. Of course, the very fact that Moses bears an Egyptian name will lend a drama of identity to his story, and it is this that we will consider in tomorrow's talk, but for now, we must ponder the dialectic contained in the Exodus story at the outset. For in the tale of the Egyptian enslavement, we have always, on the one hand, seen the start of a pattern of persecution that exists throughout our history. Sheloachad bilvad we sing at the Seder. Amada leinu lechaloteno. Not only one, not only Egypt, rose up against us to annihilate us. Rather, in every generation, they rise up against us to destroy us There are patterns in Jewish history. From the Exodus tale, we learn of the constant threats to the people of Israel. Yet in the midst of all this, we also at the same time mark the moral heroism of particular Egyptians. Heroism which stands as a testament to the moral capacity of mankind. And thus, this complexity reflects how we tell the Exodus tale in the Haggadah. Much of the Seder is particularistic, people-of-Israel-oriented. But after the meal is consumed, suddenly psalms are sung that are not only about Israel or not largely about Israel at all, but rather looking forward to a time when all humanity in a world redeemed will join in praise of God. Praise the Lord, all the nations, adore Him, all the peoples, we read in the Haggadah, followed by another stanza universalistic in nature. Nishmat Kochai Tivarech Et Shimcha. The soul of every living being will bless your name. The genius of Judaism lies in its balance of the particular and the universal. We focused first on the tale of the chosen nation, but we end Passover evening by thinking of all humanity. As the years went on, the Exodus themes of persecution and moral heroism were further reflected in the story of the Sarajevo Haggadah and of its savior. When Tito's communists took over Yugoslavia, Dervis Korkut was absurdly placed on trial for aiding fascists. Korkut's family asked for Mirapapo to testify on his behalf, to describe how he had worked against the German fascists. But she, afraid what would occur if she turned out at the trial, failed to do so. Mirapapo married, became Mirapapo Bakovic, her husband died, she emigrated to Israel, and overcome by guilt, she testified to Yad Vashem about what Korkut had done for her. And Korkut's family was sent a certificate by the institution, bestowing its greatest honor, proclaiming Korkut a righteous Gentile among the nations. Fast forward to the 1990s and the war in Yugoslavia. Korkut's daughter, Lamija, like many members of her community, was in deep crisis and needed to escape the country. Geraldine Brooks writes that, quote, La Misha and her husband tracked down the head of the local Jewish community and produced the crumpled photocopy that Mira Papo testimony had provided for them. The certificate bears a biblical epigraph in English and Hebrew, Whoever saves one life is as though he had saved the entire world. The Macedonian Jews, delighted by the opportunity to repay a debt from the Second World War, went into a frenzy of lobbying and organizing. Four days later, La Misha and her husband flew to Tel Aviv. Their children, they were promised, would join them there two days later. They arrived in the terminal at Ben-Gurion Airport, blinking in the strong Mediterranean sunlight and the flash of reporters' cameras. The story of how Dervis, a Muslim, had saved Mira, and Mira, a Jew, had saved Dervis's child, proved irresistible to the Israeli media and to its politicians. End quote. Brooks concludes her tale of Korkut's daughter by telling us that, quote, in the midst of all the chaos, someone addressed her in Serbo-Croatian. It was a good feeling to have someone speaking your language, she said. But she had no idea who it could be, greeting her so warmly. Pushing through the crowd was a slender, wiry man she had never seen before, with a shock of dark hair and a mustache. Opening his arms, he introduced himself, and Lamija fell into the embrace of Davor Bakovic, the son of Mira Papo. The Bible's second book gives us the first story of the persecution of Israel, and we know that it will not be the last. Enemies arise in every generation. But in the midst of evil, there is also, at times, heroism. Thus is the story of the exodus, the sadness and the joy, the exile and the redemption, contained in the pages and the history of the Sarajevo Haggadah. This is Mayor Soloveitchuk, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.